So here's a question for you that I was kind of wrestling with this week. It's a question, actually, uh, to be honest with you, it's going to be a question that at first it's going to be kind of easy to blow off and think, well, no, nothing, you know, that's the way it is. But I want you to just sort of discipline yourself and to, and, to, and to maybe ask yourself this question rather seriously. And here's the question. Here's the question. The question I was wrestling with is not just a knee-jerk answer, but to really ask the question, what would it take for you to turn away from Jesus? I mean, whether you're, you're here or you're online and you're just sort of maybe checking it out and walking towards and trying it a bit, you've heard about Christians or whatever, and, and, and you're, you're maybe on this bit of a journey and maybe the decision towards Jesus lies ahead, what would it take you to make you quit to say, I'm not a chance, I am out? Or maybe you've been following Jesus for, for 60 years. What would it take for you to just say, you know what, no, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm not going to do that. You know, I was, I was wrestling with that a little bit and trying to answer that question honestly. And I, I've often thought, you know, with Andrew and Sarah and the kids living, living down southern Alberta now and every once in a while, not very every once in a while, but every once in a while they come up and visit. And I think, what if it was an accident like Henry when he drove us into that drunk, drunk, drunk driver that time? The head-on collision and, and they were all killed. What do I think of Jesus? How, you know, because I think it, I'd sort of go one of both ways. Either, you know, you'd be like, man, I don't know how I'd get through this without my faith. Or it'd be like, you know what, Jesus? What would it take? Would, it, would there be anything that would cause you to say, you know what, I'm out. Whether it be a, a matter of the heart or a matter of the, of the mind. What would it take? You know, I've been thinking about that. And then this morning, I opened up a, a text from, from Frank Further about this, this plane crash, you know, and... Six people killed and five of the pastors, five passengers from the church that Frank's and Nessie's son attends. The youth pastor and some of the guys and they've got kids and there's two fiancés left. And how do you, and they're saying, we're having a hard time processing this. What would it take? Is there anything that you'd just say, you know what, I just, I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm out. I'm out. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And whether his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? He's not really going to back off here. Does this offend you? Oh, this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? How are you going to deal with that? You see, the Spirit gives life. The flesh, it counts for nothing. And the words I've spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. And yet there's some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from that time on, many of his disciples, many of his followers, many of those that were hanging around with Jesus, many of those that had carried him out and watched him do miracles, many of those people that listened to every word that he said out in the wilderness, many of those people who were followers of Jesus turned back and no longer followed him. Too much. I'm out. <laughs> you don't love, want to leave me too, do you? Are you going to leave me too? He said to those most intimate with him, to the twelve. And Simon Peter, he answers him, 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You've, we have come to believe, believe in my heart and know in my mind that you are the Holy One of God. And they just replied to them, have I not chosen you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who the one of the twelve was to betray him. I've only got 12 left out of this multitude that, that's been following me and they've all turned away and I'm going to ask you, you 12 of my most intimate, you 12 who are closest to me, are you going to leave too? Are you going to turn away from me too? Is this too hard for you as well? And Peter's are like, well, no, you've got the words of life, but even one of those most intimates would turn away, would give it up. When we take it seriously, you know, this really is a bit of a challenging passage because people are confronted with the big question, should I stay or should I go? I mean, it's a big whole deal. Because either way, it's going to be a tough thing for them that we see this in this passage. And just like today, most people turn away and walk away from Jesus because they realize that the cost is just too high. And it's almost reluctantly Almost because, like, well, what else are we going to do? Almost, just, he says, well, where else are we going to go? This is hard, and this is tough, and it's difficult, and, and it's kind of a hard thing, but who else can we go to? I, I guess we're kind of stuck with you, Jesus. I mean, that's kind of how that whole thing is said. What choice do we have? Really, what choice do we have? We've got to stick with you. You see, sooner or later, we're confronted with the hard and the offensive ways and sayings and teachings and demands of Jesus. And that's what they said. This is a hard and offensive saying. It's not hard because it was necessarily hard to understand. The problem is we do understand sometimes. And it's just a, a morally hard choice to make. It's just a hard thing for us to commit to. And so that's how the passage begins. It, 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 this is a hard teaching. Now, it's a bit of a debate as to what they mean by this is a hard teaching. If it's the whole bunch of patches that he said since he did the feeding of the multitude, or is it just this, this little bit here in verse 15 where it says, very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise them up on the last day. This last little bit where we talked about last week where Jesus is saying listen, unless you take me deep inside yourself, unless you devour me, unless you take me so far into you that you become like me you don't have life and the only way and the only one and this was a hard teaching for them and for us. It was hard for the original listeners because it was a dismissal of everything that they'd already thought about getting life. They thought that the way to get life was very simple. Number one, you belong to the right society, the right culture. That is, you become a child of Abraham. And then you obey Abraham's laws and Moses that Moses gave us. You obey the commandments and you live faithfully and you do your sacrificial thing. And that's how we get life. If I'm a son of Abraham, if I'm in the bloodline of Abraham, and I you know, keep covenant by doing these laws, then I am in. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm going to tell you something. Abraham actually is all about me. And the laws are all pointing towards me. 
And if it wasn't not just a rejection of everything that they thought and everything that they felt as a, as a, a, a member of that society or of that family, and then it sounded an awful lot like cannibalism to them, which, of course, the Jews, you know, did laws against that. For us, we find it may be a little bit different reason to be offended. We, we kind of know that Jesus doesn't mean be cannibals. But, man, we get offended at the exclusivity of that claim. I mean, when our whole society is all about inclusivity and belonging and everyone's getting along and it's all going to be good and everyone just tries their heart, we find it so offensive that Jesus would make this claim. Listen, there is one way, baby, one way. This is it, this is it, no other thing. This counts, only this. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's it. That's it. You do that, you have life. You don't do that, you don't have life. It's a hard teaching. And that part of exclusivity in our society is so hard. But Jesus, he takes this this hard teaching and he doesn't back off. As a matter of fact, he forces them into a hard decision because he's calling them to do hard things. You know, as I meditated on this this whole deal here, there was a couple of questions that came to my mind. Besides, what would it take to turn me against Jesus? And the first question is, you know, Alan, if you don't find the teachings of Jesus hard, are you taking them seriously enough? Really? Because as I go through my daily life and I just kind of wander through, and you know, isn't Jesus wonderful and all these kind of things, you know, I never really think about Jesus' teaching being very hard. It's a great life. It's an easy life. It's a good life. But as I thought about this, and Jesus saying, listen, this is hard stuff. Do I take the teaching of Jesus seriously enough? I mean, just think about the Sermon on the Mount. How much do I take that seriously? How much do I dismiss it? You know, when I was going to Emmanuel there, came to graduate, and then I came back up here, and all was good. And then I get this phone call, Alan, we miscounted your credits. You're a couple short of graduating. So you've got to do this independent study course with our professor, Fred Norris. Okay. And so I did a course on the Sermon on the Mount. I had to do all this reading. And, oh, it's, it's quite an ordeal. But the main thing that I got out of that whole thing is that as you go through the history of, of people dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, what it says is that most of the time we spend most of our energy coming up with excuses about why Jesus didn't really mean what Jesus said. He didn't really mean it. It's just kind of an example. I mean, think about how seriously do I take... I mean, the sound of that is kind of the, the core teaching of this is what it is to follow Jesus. This is the kind of person I'm going to make you into as the Holy Spirit works in your life. And so what's going to do? Tell you what, Alan, turn the other cheek. Well, okay. Once. Hey, Alan. If somebody asks you for your coat, give him your shirt as well. Well, okay, as long as he treats it well, I don't see it laying on the street a week later. Hey, Alan, if you write somebody off and cut them out of your life, you're in danger of hell. Hey, Alan, You can either be devoted to money or to God, but you can't do both. 
Hey, Alan, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. How seriously, really, how seriously do you take that teaching? Or do you do kind of like me and Christians through, through hundreds of years have done, come up with every reason why Jesus didn't really mean what he actually says, and it doesn't really apply to me, or it doesn't apply in this circumstance, or have done it long enough? These are hard teachings. And if I'm honest with myself, and I don't find them hard, there's two options. Number one, I don't take them seriously enough. Or number two, I am a marvelous sanctified guy. You know which one it is. How hard is it? Do I somehow try to take the teachings of Jesus and squeeze them into what I think? And squeeze them into what our society says? And squeeze them into the way I wish that things were? Do I take them of Jesus and, and do I? And so that led me then to the this, this second question. Well, you know, I, I hope that I wouldn't do some wholesale abandonment of Jesus no matter what happened. But how about this? What would it take for Jesus to change my mind on something? Really? What does it take for Jesus to take my mind about something that I really believe in or that I really want? What about all these little micro decisions I make in my life? What about the times when, when there's a clash with the teachings of Jesus and the teachings that our society gives? What would it take for me to be the only one to stand up and say, this is what I think and this is what I believe because Jesus said it and all of the rest of the world says, you're an idiot. You're not even loving. What would it take for me to have Jesus really change my mind? Really? You see, there's all kinds of reasons to follow the crowd and, and to turn back. I mean, think about that. I mean, just think of the things that, that happened in this passage as to why people, in, in some measure, turned away from Jesus and those that stuck with him said, well, pff, I guess we kind of have to. Well, I mean, think about this stuff. First of all, what Jesus was saying and doing was different than they thought and they felt. It was just different. The Jewish people, as I've said, you know, obey the law. Children of Abraham were good. And we're going to rise up and the Messiah is going to come. And we're going to defeat Rome. We're going to crush them. And our nation is going to be great again. And everyone's going to see that we are right. That's what they thought. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. They felt like, man, you know, God is really mad at us because this is happening to us. And we just feel that if we would do it right, then God would deliver us. And God would make us great again. And they left because what Jesus was saying and doing, they didn't think that way and they didn't feel that way. You know, there's all kinds of people today, the people that I see walking away from Jesus today. You know why? Because of compassion. Because of their compassion for other people. And, and in our society, we find ourselves saying, you know, well, surely God wouldn't say that that's wrong. I mean, they're, they're a nice person. They're a loving person. People would rather hang around them than, than me. So surely God, God wouldn't say that that's wrong. And, and it hurts them. It hurts people to say, hey, there's only one way. I, I don't, I'm a compassionate person. God wouldn't do that. 
God would never have condoned a war in the Old Testament. God, God wouldn't do that. And so this, this, it can't be right. I mean, there's a God, all right, but the God of the Bible, pff, I just can't go along with that. But do, you, do you understand the suffering in war? God would never condone that. God would never eternally separate himself from people. I mean, he's a, he's a loving God. And whether you think it's like hell is, you know, kind of eternal suffering or whether you think it's annihilation, the Bible, honestly, to be honest with you, I can't see it very clear at either point, whatever it is. But, you know, God is a loving God, and so he surely wouldn't send anybody away from him. He for sure, he for sure would not send away people who were sincerely pursuing God and they just are sort of on a different track than me. Surely God would say, look at their heart, and you know, you're sincere, and you didn't quite get it right with Jesus, but that's okay, you followed another path. Surely God would not, would not say he's going to be separate from them forever and ever and ever. It seems to me as I talk to people who, who turn away from Jesus, it's kind of a half turn, because we're compassionate, and we love people, and that's good. But then when God and Jesus and his exclusivity and his righteousness and those things clash against that, we say, well, you know, that, that can't be right. That can't be right. That's not who, who God really is, and he doesn't fit how I think or how I feel things should be. So we turn away. The other reason that people turned away from Jesus in this whole thing is, is just plain and simple. It's not what they wanted. It is not what they wanted. They wanted an earthly king. Remember that? They thought to make him king. They take him, let you be the Jewish king and overthrow Rome. That's what we want. That's what we'll do. We're going to try and force you to be king. And Jesus wasn't about that at all. F.F. Bruce says it in this interesting way. He says, what these people wanted, Jesus would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Jesus wasn't selling what they wanted to buy. They wanted to make an earthly king to fill their bellies and Jesus wanted a kingdom of truth and justice and compassion and grace on earth where even the enemies of God's people would have salvation and they would love those people into the kingdom. You know, Rick Watts, he says an interesting thing on this whole little passage here about about what, what people want. And he's actually commenting on verse 65. Verse 65 said this, if you look at it, no one can come to the Father unless the Lord, the Father has, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. All right, so then what says, but let's take a look at, at what he means by that. And, and he has three verses which are really quite interesting, having to do with this whole thing of what people want. If you think back to chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said this, how can you believe since you accept the glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes from only God? In other words, you're not going to take what I am giving you because what you care about is what the people around you say and whether or not the people around you think that you're going the right direction, you're doing the right thing, you have the right God. You're more interested in whether or not you'll be criticized for being a follower than not. And then we're going to get to the next two. In chapter 7, verse 17, he says this. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. In other words, you won't know until you try it. Whoever speaks on their own does so, why? To gain personal glory. 
But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. See what it's saying? Same kind of a deal. You're not following my teaching because you're more interested in yourself feeling good about yourself and other people saying good things about you. Chapter 8, verse 43 and following. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. Well, why are you unable to hear what I say? Why? I'll tell you why. Because you belong to your father, the devil. How is that for a nice language? And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You don't want to listen to me. You don't want to accept my teaching. Because you want to go back and you don't realize it. But this teaching that stands against what I'm teaching comes from the father of lies. You have a desire for human glory in your own eyes for yourself and in the eyes of other people. And because of that, you won't accept my teaching and you have an inability to come to me. I'll tell you why. Because you won't accept my truths. And the father cannot. And then Rick Watts says an interesting thing. He says this. The Father could not give some people to Jesus because they are not his to give. The Father couldn't give some people to Jesus because they weren't his people to give. Because unless the people say, yes, we will devour Jesus. Yes, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Unless you're doing that, then, then we are not the fathers. And so the Father doesn't give to the Son because we haven't given ourselves to the Father. We go our own way because... What the Father has to offer, we don't really want. We want something else. Other people, just simply because it's too demanding. This is a hard teaching. We are out. I really like what Dallas Willard has to say. Dallas Willard is a great, great writer. His book, uh, his foundational book. It's, so, it's such good stuff. This heresy, and the heresy he's talking about, is the idea that you can have forgiveness without lordship. That you can be saved without Jesus being the lord of your life. That you can be forgiven without bending your knee to Jesus. That's, he's commenting on that's the heresy in short. Okay? So this heresy has created the impression that it's quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. Well, what's a vampire Christian? Well, a vampire Christian is when one, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood. I'd like a little of your blood, please. But I don't care to be your student, or your disciple, or to have your character. As a matter of fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life, and I'll see you in heaven. Vampire Christians. The, the full idea of Christianity is just too demanding for our life. We'll just take a little bit of blood that gets us into heaven, that gets the forgiveness of our sins, but, but I don't want to be changed, and I don't want to be submissive, and I don't want to be challenged, and I don't want to have my mind changed, and I don't want to go through hard times. Just give me a little bit of blood, and I'll see you in heaven. And Jesus said, no, 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 <laughs> you don't understand. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you're my disciple, then every single thing of you belongs to me. And every single thing of you must be in submission to my lordship. Everything, your time, your energy, your sexuality, your money, your relationships. Everything. Everything. 
It'll cost you everything. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Everything. I demand everything of you. So am I a disciple? Or am I a vampire? Am I ready to give everything? Or do I just want a little bit of Jesus' blood to get me through the fires of hell and forgiveness and sins? Have I fallen into this heresy, the, the idea that I can be forgiven without having Jesus as my Lord? And the other thing we see in this passage as to why to turn away from Jesus is <laughs> they got a better offer. At least he thought he did. Judas, one that hung around for a little while longer, was one of the 12, one of the, the intimate ones. 30 pieces of silver. It's a better deal. It's a better deal than what this guy is offering. And sometimes we drift in our commitment to Jesus. Because for a moment or two, it feels like a better offer. For one night, or one business deal, or one conversation, it just kind of feels like a better offer. Well, this other community is not an eschatological community. <laughs> but it's people that we all get along together, and it's, it's just kind of a better offer. I think I'll hang out over here. Well, thanks, Alan. Lots of reasons to turn away. I don't know why I got up this morning. I won't be seeing you next week. <laughs> All kinds of reasons to turn away. But 12 and then 11 stuck with it. There's a reason to stay because there's all of these reasons to walk away. But on the other hand, there are compelling reasons to stay with Jesus. That Jesus puts it to them. Hey, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to drift away? Are you going to turn away? Are you going to try and become a vampire? What are you going to do? And Peter, with almost resignation, <laughs> says, Oh, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the very words of life. It's sort of like saying, yeah, I understand that. But really, if we want to live, if we want eternity, if we want to see the Father, even when the falling you is tough and hard, we have to stick with you. Because you are the one that has the words of life. You are, in fact, the Holy One of God seated on the throne. That's what Jesus says, right? Oh, you, this, oh, this offends you? Then what would you say if you saw the Son of Man ascending from where he came? The ascension that happens. You don't like this exclusivity? You disagree with the demands of my Lordship placed upon you? You want something a little bit different? My proclamations offend your morality and how you feel that things should be? What if I ascended? What if you saw me ascend? What if I went up and returned to the place where I was? You see, the ascension, it's kind of different things that means this. First of all, the ascension itself was going to be offensive. You know why it's offensive? Because for Jesus, the way to ascension, the way in which he was then carried up into heaven, up into the clouds with all the disciples, 
was he had to go through the cross. He had to die. And the idea of a dying, dead, sacrificed God who couldn't even stand against Rome was pretty offensive to the people. And so even that ascension, even the way in which the plan of salvation is offensive to people who look for an all-powerful, mighty God who squishes Roman armies like a bug. He said, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ascend to the place that I came from. And what he's saying is, I'm going back. You need to understand something. I'm returning to my pre-existence. I'm going back to where I was before the creation of the world. I'm going back to the seat of glory at the right hand of the Father. You see, his ascension puts a stop to all of the objections against Jesus and his teaching. Oh, that offends you? Oh, you feel a different way? Oh, you don't agree with that? That doesn't feel right to you? You wouldn't have done it that way? You wish it was some other way? Tell you what, I'm ascending to the very throne room of heaven because I am almighty God. I am the Lord of the universe. And all things were created for me and through me. And so I get to say, because I am the ruler of the universe. And in the end, Alan, it doesn't matter what you feel and it doesn't matter what you think and it doesn't matter how you wish things were going to be different. I'm God and I have ascended unto heaven. I am the Holy One of God. That's a phrase of authority. That's a claim of, that's really what that's saying. Is I was sent from God, I am in fact the resurrected God and it doesn't matter how offended you are or how you feel about something or what you think. I am the true. My way is the way and I am the only way to life. You know, in a way... This statement of Jesus, oh, does this offend you? What have you to see me ascend to the place I've begun? That's kind of like the stick. You know, you've got the carrot and the stick, and that's kind of the stick part of it. It's like Jesus says, oh, that offends you? Too bad, I'm God, I get to say. But then he gives the carrot, and it's the stuff that Dave had a song about. On the other hand, the carrot is a spirit-filled eternal life. That's the gracious hope. And the reason to be a disciple, to be a follower, to stick with Jesus and to not turn back when things become hard and demand a change of me and demand submission from me and all of those things. That's the carrot. Is a spirit-filled eternal life. Jesus said, look, I'm going to tell you something. The flesh counts for nothing. What does he mean the flesh counts for nothing? Well, the first thing he means is this. The flesh, this here, is temporary. Now, eventually you come to Jesus, you come to life, you're going to get a resurrected body and it'll be, you know, kind of the same but different. But right now, for what you have, it's temporary. You are going to die. This is going to go. And it'll probably go faster than you might think. And the other thing he says that the flesh comes to nothing is this. And this is harder. The flesh is really no help in understanding the things of God. The flesh counts for nothing. There's all kinds of things that God does and God says that I don't understand. They may even go against how I think things should be. You know, in the end, here's what I wish. Here's how I think it should be. I think it should be Jesus dies. 
end of the earth comes, and God says, ah, come on, it's okay. You try it hard. That's what I think it should be. I mean, there's some places, you know, for hell for people who just are really, really totally evil. But, you know, for everybody, you try hard. Come on, that's, that's, that's how I think it should be. But that's my flesh. And God says, look, Alan, your flesh counts for nothing. Your reasoning counts for nothing. I, I know the way to be there. And the way, because nobody's going to be able to be good enough to do it. it, it you've got to have, you know, there has to be some recompense for sin, all of these different things. And so I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you spirit life. It's the Holy Spirit who is associated with the ascension of Jesus. Jesus ascended unto high, and then Jesus sent the Spirit of the Father upon us to transform us and to empower us. And here's the marvelous thing, so that we could have intimacy with God. You see, it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the joy that is life. The fruit of the Spirit is, is joy. And if you want to be intimate with God, it requires the Holy Spirit who will come and dwell within us and dwell amongst us. And then that life, that intimacy with the creation of the universe, that's what makes everything else all worthwhile. And if we just, you know, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, it just becomes kind of a bit dry and a bit tough. But when we have the Holy Spirit and we have that intimacy, then we're empowered to live the life that God calls us to live. And we take the Sermon on the Mountain as the Spirit transforms us. Those things that I said, you know, I like to come up with excuses why they're not true. They become, Dallas Willard says, they become natural to us because our nature has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. And God is seen within our life by the Holy Spirit. The flesh counts for nothing, but the Spirit is the giver of life. You know, we've been a little bit old school already in some of the, the singing that we've done today first, Lord Jesus, and this sort of thing. And, you know, and I got to, towards the end of this, this study that I was doing, and I, I started feeling a little n- nostalgic for some reason. I don't know why, but I just kind of did. And, and I started thinking about when I was a kid, when I was 17, back here in this church, you know, and through the Cloverdance clan, I started coming when I was in high school. And um, in that time, it, it's, it feels to me, I don't know, Marge, Norris's, Norris's, maybe you tell me the truth. It felt to me like every Sunday when Hardenbrook was done, we would sing the song that Dave was singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. It seemed like every Sunday we'd do that song. And I, I started thinking about that song. You know, it's quite a song. Um, the origin of the song, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit fuzzy. And maybe it's pounded up a little bit. But that song, what we do know for sure, is that song somehow came out of northern India. And obviously it's been translated into English. And, it, you know, I listened to, to ethnomusicologists I read to see. It's kind of an interesting study. Anyhow, eschatological community... <laughs> Anyway, I was reading this stuff, and they told me this song, and, and the tradition that goes on with the song, which may be embellished, maybe it's true or whatever, but somehow it had to do with in the middle of the 1800s. In northern India, there, there were very violent tribes, tribal culture. And missionaries after the Welsh Revival went in there, and, and the story goes that there was a convert by the name of Nok Singh, 
And he and his wife and his two sons decided to follow Jesus. And to not just be vampire Christians, but to, to go the whole show and, and his and their and her and their lives were so powerful that, that a good number of the, the tribe that he was a part of started to turn towards Jesus. The tribal chieftain didn't think too much about this. Went against the ancient gods. Was going to disrupt the whole society. And so he, he gathers the tribe together and, and he brings this family before them. And he's challenged not saying, you need to renounce Jesus or bad things are going to happen to you. And Nuxing said, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So the chieftain gave the nod and his two sons were struck down with arrows. And the chieftain said, you need to renounce this Jesus or bad things are going to happen to you. And Luxing said, though none go with me, still I will follow. And the arrows were loosed, and his wife fell dead. And the chieftain said, are you yet ready to renounce this Jesus and return to our ancient gods? And Luxing said, the cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. And the arrows flew, and he fell dead. Some of the traditions end there. Some of the traditions go on and say, the chieftain was so struck by this that he converted, came to Jesus, and there's this big tribal conversion. And then these last words inspired this song. And that uh, Indian song then was translated over to English, changed the music a little bit, and became popular with Billy Graham and the boys. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So Dave's going to come, and he's just going to sing that song. But here's our invitation. I'd like us to just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And to see if there's anything in my heart, in your heart, that, yeah, I, I turn back. Some area of my life that, that Jesus isn't the Lord of, that if, that if somehow Jesus violated that, if I lost all my family, would I turn back? Or is, is he really the Lord of that? And then, 
Knowing that, but what, what would it take for Jesus to change your mind about things that you feel or you think, and you kind of know that Jesus would say it differently? What would it take to allow the Holy Spirit to change that in you? And you just sort of pray through that. So maybe it's, you've never done it. You've never come to Jesus. You're on the journey. You checked it out. You thought about it, whatever. And somehow, in spite of the cost, today's the day where you say, you know what? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Maybe the Spirit whispers to you and says, man, Alan, you're a bit of a vampire. You're a whole lot more interested in getting just a little bit of the blood of Jesus to get you into heaven than you are about becoming his disciple and bend your knee. Oh, there's some things that I think that I want to change Jesus and squeeze him into what I think instead of me growing into what he thinks.